0: Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty.
1: It's
2: the students.
0: It's the curriculum.
2: It's the inspiration.
0: Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast.
2: Well, welcome in, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Boston University Law School podcast. I am the aforementioned Dan Ray, also a proud graduate of Boston University Law School, an attorney and a longtime broadcast journalism here in Boston, both at WBZ-TV and now I host an evening talk show on WBZ Radio, 1030 in the AM dial. We're on every Monday through Friday night from 8 until midnight and i'm delighted to host this program here on the legal talk network today's guest is boston university law school professor david walker he teaches courses in taxation corporate law law and economics and the economic structure of commercial transactions, aka deals he's the maurice Polk faculty research scholar at boston university law school he received his um, his own juris doctor from harvard law school and today we're going to talk about executive compensation with uh, professor walker professor walker written numerous articles about the issue of executive compensation. He has some very interesting insights to share on what has become very hot topic here in the United States of America. Welcome to the show, Professor. How are you today?
1: Great, Dan. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on the show.
2: Well, thanks very much for joining us. There is no doubt uh, that there is a certain perception in this country about big corporate executive compensation is not necessarily good dating back almost a decade, but really came into sharp focus with all the uh, government bailouts of some U.S. corporations, of course, a lot of U.S. banks. Let's talk about um where we are, how we got there, and um where we are going. What's the lay of the land now? Um, how much are these, well, again, senior executives, whatever you want to call them, paid? Um, and it's very difficult, I assume, to quantify, but what did what did the statistics look like? I've 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 have I've heard it referenced in many ways Uh, how how do you approach the topic generally
1: well so it it is a little bit difficult to uh, quantify although there's all sorts of great disclosure these days for senior executive pay so it's something we actually know more about than we know about uh, a lot of things like how much uh, professors are paid for instance not publicly uh, not public information but the average CEO of a fortune 500 company uh, makes about 10 million dollars uh, today. Um, and, you know, it's made up of a lot of things that we can talk about, stock and stock options and, and cash compensation. And there are questions about when to measure these things. The cash is easy. Some of the other stuff is harder. But we've got a pretty good feel for that. It's about, it's about $10 million. I, th- I think what's, you know, more striking to me than the absolute number, I mean, that's a big number, but more striking is, is how it's grown, like over the last 25 years. So over the last 25 years, this average amount, $10 million, has grown by about 500% in real terms. So adjusted for inflation. And obviously, that's a lot faster than uh, increases in pay of average workers, rank and file pay. So what a lot of people look at is the ratio between CEO pay and rank and file pay. And that's grown from something like maybe 50 times more 25 years ago to something like two or 300 times more today.
2: Well, why, why should the government in any way, shape, or form be involved in this? I realize we're talking about publicly traded companies. We're not talking about privately held companies, but there is a You know, publicly traded company and, and, uh, well, well, let's look at it another way. If, If the Red Sox want to sign Adrian Gonzalez, they pay him whatever the market will bear. Uh, and you can look at Adrian Gonzalez and you can say, well, is he really worth, you know, $20 million a year over eight years? Uh, he's going to hit 30 home runs, but the guy who hits 10 home runs, uh, might not even be tendered a renewal contract, say, by the Red Sox. And if you, if you carry that over to the corporate world, if there is someone who is so talented, and I don't even understand what the talent is, but if there is someone who is so talented, a Jack Welsh or whatever, who can turn one of these companies around, um, what interest does the government have, uh, in determining, guiding, um, setting up any any para, any peripheral uh, limitations on on what someone should be able to make
1: all right so that 's a great question so so jeter 's just got a new contract that we 've all been reading about derek jeter 's sure. new contract with the yankees and it 's for a heck of a lot of money um, but the the difference is I think that that we we think that that contract is negotiated at arm 's length we see that Jeter has an agent who's going tooth and nail with Yankees management, and essentially Yankees ownership is deciding how much they're willing to pay Jeter or to let him go. The concern in the public company context is that the directors who are negotiating with, let's say, the CEO, they're very smart people, they're very well-meaning people, I don't have any doubt about that, but the question is whether they're in the same position, whether they have the same incentives to drive the same kind of bargain that we see out there with sports players and everything else. Um, There's a very different dynamic. I mean, at the end of the day, Jeter and Tom Brady and LeBron James, these guys are employees. Um, The CEO is the boss. So in the corporate setting, you've got the boss negotiating. It used to be very much kind of the boss setting his own pay. I don't think it's that way anymore. But we're concerned about whether that negotiating dynamic uh, is really sufficient to get the best Deal for the shareholders. I think that's why we have a concern here that we don't have uh, in the context of sports stars.
2: But, but again, what I'm trying to flush this out and understand it in my own mind. Uh, and I'm sure uh, people are going to say, "Gee, why are you asking? What, what seem to be such elementary questions?" Not at all. If, I, if, if I'm a stockholder in in a company, and I I'm going to invest a significant amount of my money in that company, or even if I represent. Uh, a group of stockholders if i'm somehow a mutual fund uh isn't it part of my due diligence as an investor to f- i mean if i want to buy tickets to go see the yankees play and spend a lot of money i want to know how well they're going to do i want to know if jeter's playing uh, 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 and all of that and if if he's not that might influence my decision as a fan in whether or not i'm going to invest in that team isn't the the fan of the Yankees, analogous to the stockholder in the big corporation.
1: I'm not sure that they are. I think the fan of the Yankees might be more analogous to the person who buys the products that are produced by GM or Ford or Exxon or or something like that. Um, the, shareholders clearly play a role and we would love to see shareholders uh, play a more active role and in fact today uh, it's kind of a separate topic but um, uh, we think that institutional investors as shareholders play a more active monitoring role than they used to but traditionally uh, shareholders of public companies didn't play much of a much of an active role they would buy shares they would hold a few shares they didn't hold enough shares to give them the incentive to really get involved and dig into the company. But um, whose
2: problem is that? If you don't, if you're going to buy in a company and you don't have enough incentive, it, 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 I guess what I'm, I'm not being argumentative here, Professor. I'm just trying to understand what is the compelling reason of the government to, to interfere in this. If I'm Jack Welch and, and, and GE wants to pay me $50 million a year or whatever it is, and they think I'm worth it, fine. And if you're a stockholder in the company and you think that's a bad deal, sell your shares.
1: Right. Well, so the, the argument. Now, I mean, there's, there's one question which would be how much the government has interfered. And I would actually say not that much. I mean, okay. what we mainly have are rules about disclosure that help shareholders figure out whether we're paying executives too much.
2: And I think that's great. I think that's great. So
1: so actually, if we we get into the kind of substantive uh, regulation of pay, there's really not that much. But the argument for why we would have it is that, uh, well, it goes back to what I was saying. I mean, economists call it an agency problem, but it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is the way we raise capital in this country has been through large publicly traded companies where it's simply not realistic to think that the shareholders, that any individual shareholder uh, is going to have the incentive to monitor it. you may think that's the shareholder's fault. I don't. I mean, I think it makes sense for me to hold shares in a lot of different companies. I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I want to hold the S&P 500. I don't have that much money to invest. So that means I just have a few shares out there in all of these different companies. And it doesn't make sense for me or for you to be monitoring those companies. So part of it is just the structure of our capital markets the way we raise money, the way we finance companies, means that there's nobody really paying the kind of careful attention that the Steinbrenner family pays when they go to negotiate contracts
2: okay um, again i'll uh, I'll get off my short <laughs> <no, it's laughs> but, but, but but it's it, an it, interesting it's an question. issue. Well, it's an issue that I really strongly believe in to be honest with you. Uh and and I think well anyway, let, let's go um, back to why did the shift from salary to equity pay occur? There was a apparently a tax law in 1993 that encouraged companies to use stock options uh, as opposed to straight salary.
1: Right. So, yeah, so it's important to recognize that, yeah, a big chunk of the 10 million bucks, if we use that number, that, that uh, the average executive's getting, uh, a big chunk of that is equity-based pay. It's stock or stock options. Um, and I think this is, this is an interesting story about government regulation and, frankly, unintended consequences. So uh, if we go back and we put ourselves in the mindset, we're back in the 1980s, um, there was a lot of concern that executives... Um, uh, that executive pay was too much just salary basis. These were salary men. They didn't have the right incentives to uh, maximize shareholder value. They, um, uh, they were misaligned in terms of their incentives. Um, I wouldn't say that people thought they were lazy, but they just thought that having them hold stock would make them act more like shareholders, and this would be good for increasing shareholder value. It all goes back to the problem of who's really closely watching in this kind of thing. So what we got, um, we didn't get, Congress didn't uh, go in and mandate the way in which executives were were paid. They've never wanted to do that, and I think there's good reasons not to, and I think your intuition is consistent with that. We don't want to tell these companies exactly what to do. What they did was they created a big tax incentive. So the way this worked, and this rule is still in effect, uh, public companies... um, get deductions, tax deductions, for compensation they pay to their employees and their executives, to everyone. So Congress limited the tax deduction for senior executive compensation to a million dollars per executive per year. But in doing that, they created an exception. So as long as compensation is performance-based, as long as it's based on performance, it's fully deductible. And the way the rules were written, stock options the rules were written basically to, to set up stock options as being the paradigm of performance-based pay. So companies could pay their executives a million dollars in salary and then give them $10 million worth of options. That would all be deductible. And so the idea was, let's try to shift compensation from salary to performance-based pay, ratchet up their incentives to make money for the shareholders. And of course, companies did. So we shifted from salary to basically stock option-dominant executive pay. At one point, stock options were 60 to 70% of total compensation. Stock market took off in the 1990s. Executives got really rich. So it's kind of ironic that in the recent financial crisis, um, a lot of this has been blamed on executives holding all these stock options, taking too much risk, right? The the law law of
2: unintended consequences. Exactly.
1: Unintended consequences
2: well um so so as you look back on this law now 17 years uh, from your perspective, uh, was it a valuable piece of legislation, or, or did it contribute to the to the meltdown and the problems that we had um, that we've had so much so much in the last couple of years?
1: I, well, it's hard to. It is hindsight, and you know, I hesitate, but uh, but I have to say, I, th- I have to think it was a mistake. I think it, it didn't. It certainly didn't affect the overall levels of pay. Now, I don't, I'm not sure um, that that was the intention. Some people think that this rule, by setting up this kind of cap, was meant to put a, a, a break on increasing executive pay it certainly didn't do that and it did redirect pay uh too strongly i think into stock options um amongst the many possible ways of paying these executives um so i think it actually did have uh, uh, an, uh, a poor unintended consequence i think it was a mistake
2: do you think it's it's time perhaps for congress to go back and visit that legislation i, or?
1: I think they should um I, it's it's been suggested um that they do, um, yes, I would, I would probably eliminate that.
2: Um, It is unquestionably very competitive out there to keep the top executives. We all know, who the best baseball players are and the best basketball players and LeBron James, he gets $20 million and signs with Miami and, you know, their, their salaries of the super superstars are kind of similar. So, um, there's a similar competition, you know, you want LeBron James on your team. Uh, the Red Sox wanted Adrian Gonzalez, um, What is the competitive dynamic and who creates it? I mean, I know how it's created in sports. How is that competitive dynamic created in the world of uh, top
1: executives? Right. Well, yeah, I think there's there's no doubt that you know senior executive talent is really key to company success uh, and to shareholder value. I mean, I'm I'm someone who writes a lot about executive pay. I worry that some executives may be paid too much, but uh, no, I think these people are are, uh, play a Very important role, and they deserve to be uh, paid well. And I feel uh, I understand the position that the directors uh, of these companies are in. The members of these, there's typically a compensation, there's always a compensation committee, uh, uh, which is a subset of the board of directors uh, at these companies. They're responsible for doing this negotiation with their CEO and the other senior executives, and they're in a difficult uh, position. Um, Looking about it from their point of view, so if they pay the CEO, another million, the CEO wants another million or $2 million. Um, Sounds like a lot to us, but it's really fairly trivial if it's GM or Ford or something like this. And they don't want to risk losing that executive talent because there is competition for these people, no doubt about it. So uh, I can understand why there's a tendency to meet the executive's demands pay more. Unfortunately, this has the effect of kind of ratcheting up pay because it's all fully disclosed. And everybody sees what everybody else is making. But there is a, there's definitely a competitive dynamic out there. And it, these executives have other employment options. And one that we don't think so much about, but I think is important, is private equity. So there are a fair number of uh, formerly public companies that are now owned by uh, private equity investors, Um, These people compete with public companies for executive talent. And these private equity firms, uh, they highly incentivize their executives. They kind of led the path on uh, using stock and stock options as compensation. So you can kind of look at what's happened over the last decade or two at public companies as being public companies simply trying to keep up with what these private equity firms are doing, the competition, all competing for the same uh, talent pool.
2: We're going to take a quick break uh, here just for a moment. Much more with Boston University Law School professor David Walker right after this quick
0: break. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to lighter law school rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum.
2: And welcome back to this edition of the Boston University Law School podcast. I'm Dan Ray, your host. My guest today is business law professor David Walker, and we're focusing on executive compensation. Um, Professor, the Dodd-Frank Reform Act passed this past summer it includes several provisions addressing executive pay. Uh, clearly, it is a significant step, I guess, in the regulation of executive pay. Is it necessary? Is it a good piece of legislation?
1: Well, I actually think it, it may do less uh, with respect to executive pay than you might have expected, um, at least given the, all of the angst uh, that we recently had coming out of the financial crisis. Um, public company executives aren't really held in the highest regard at the moment. I think in the public, one might've thought that this would have been an opportunity for Congress really to step in and make some substantive changes. And we we had this discussion before that it's really unclear how far Congress should go in substantively regulating uh, executive pay. Um, they certainly, during the financial crisis, they took steps to regulate the pay of executives at the banks that participated in the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP. The argument there was well, the taxpayers own those companies, so it makes sense for us to regulate pay there. There were arguments coming out of all this, though, that Congress should uh, uh, take the same kind of steps to regulate uh, compensation in public companies generally, to do things like require companies to force their executives to hold stock and options. For a longer period than they do today, things like this. Well, Congress didn't do any of that. Um, um, No real substantive regulation of executive pay. Um, uh, The most significant thing I think they did in Dodd-Frank on executive pay is uh, to impose a requirement of shareholder say on pay, uh, which is shorthand for the idea of requiring companies to provide shareholders an advisory vote on executive compensation.
2: To me, that sounds like a crazy idea, because if on the one hand we're arguing that shareholders have a a, a few shares or you know in a, in a lot of different companies um, w- w- i don't understand what difference uh how much how informed i guess the consent could be of shareholders it It seems to me that uh, that that shareholders probably are ill equipped and ill advised uh to comment on that i mean it, to, right. to me, it's, that piece of that part of the legislation to me uh, appears to be window dressing at best.
1: Well, I think it, I think it's really interesting, and you, your point is is right. We can't expect uh, you know I'm not I, I'm a shareholder. I'm not about to go out and, and try to figure out whether the pay at all these companies uh, that I own through a bunch of mutual funds uh, is uh, appropriate or not. Um, so uh, some people who write in this area think that this uh, new rule will actually provide a lot of power or influence, maybe is a better word, to the shareholder advisory firms that are out there, firms like Institutional Shareholder Services, whose role in life is to provide voting advice to institutional investors and others. The idea is that, well, they have the incentives to pick through these executive pay plans for good or bad. Um, for good or bad. But I think the impact of this rule will be fairly limited. I mean, we have to re- remember that it's only an advisory vote, right? So no, I the, understand. right. So the shareholders
2: that's why, why says window dressing.
1: Yeah. Well, possibly, but possibly not. So here here would be the argument that it isn't just window dressing. I think it may have an impact at least on outliers. I don't think that it'll have an impact on executive pay overall. I don't think that because all shareholders can do is compare the pay of executives at Company A to Company B. And if they're all high, well, they're all high, right? So it's not going to reverse the increase in this ratio between CEO pay and and rank-and-file pay. I don't think it's going to do that. But I think it can address outliers. So I think there's a great example of this, actually. So Dodd-Frank mandates this advisory vote. A number of firms had voluntarily adopted the same advisory vote, shareholders say on pay. One was Occidental Petroleum. So back in April uh, of this year, the Wall Street Journal, as it does every year, uh, publishes an edition in which they focus on executive pay and they list the most highly paid executives for the prior year. Number one, biggest picture on the page, was Oxy CEO Ray Irani. So that's back in April. In May, Oxy had the advisory vote. You know, you want to guess the outcome? The shareholder said, "No, right? We don't like the pay at Occidental Petroleum." Um, just a couple of months ago, uh, Occidental announced that uh, executive pay was being reduced and that Irani was stepping down as CEO. So, and so it may. Have but an but effect. if
2: but if Irani was the best person to lead that company, uh, and if as a consequence somehow of this advisory vote uh the influence is 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 given to have him step down is the company better off
1: in the end well possibly not right possibly not there's no i don't have any doubt that occidental uh was well run and it was certainly successful if you look at at its returns over the last 10 years it's been very successful of course it's an oil company and, and most oil companies have done pretty well uh uh, full disclosure: I used to work in the oil industry, but anyway, oil companies have done fairly well.
2: There's like, nothing wrong with that, professor. Nothing at all.
1: <laughs> Trust but, me. <laughs> but the fact that but the fact that the company is successful and the fact that Irani has has contributed to that success, I don't think should lead us to conclude that any amount of pay is acceptable. Um, and so, so it's to me, it's not inappropriate for shareholders to send a message that. Um, The pay uh, that was being given there uh, was out of line, even given the success of the company. (laughs) Um, But I think that's the most this is going to do, is to put a break on outlier compensation, force companies to be in the middle of the pack.
2: F- a final thoughts, Professor, if if you would, the political landscape in Washington is going to change dramatically. Arguably, it's changed dramatically since November 2nd already, but it, that change will be institutionalized when the new Congress is seated in January. Um, where do you think this issue, uh, how do you think this issue is going to play out in the next couple of years with the new political landscape?
1: Right. Well, my, my suspicion is that it will actually move to the back burner. Um, you know, we've come off, if, if there was going to be Action taken, I think it was going to be in Dodd Frank. Uh, we're coming out of a financial crisis, coming uh, out of a situation in which uh, it would be politically uh, more. More easy, more palatable to to do real regulation of executive pay. The further we get from that point, the harder it is to get this kind of thing through. So my guess is that this will go on the back burner until the next financial crisis or the next uh, Enron-like corporate scandal, uh, in which it'll all bubble up again, and we'll look at it. Uh, we'll look at it then.
2: And and something like that is clearly inevitable. In oh, of moment. course.
1: Unfortunately, I think it <laughs> unfortunately.
2: is. Uh, Professor, thanks very, very much. Uh, Professor David Walker from the Boston University School of Law. Uh, David, if, if listeners would like to get in contact with you, what is the easiest way for them to, uh, to, to reach
0: out to you?
1: Uh, email. My email is on the, on the BU website. It's diwalker at bu.edu, but it's, uh, if they don't remember that, it's certainly go to the website, and uh, they can track me down very easily.
2: Well, Professor Walker, thanks very much. I enjoyed the conversation today. I really did. As you could tell, I'm probably, um, an, an unbridled libertarian on some of <laughs> these issues. And I, if it leaked into my questions, I apologize. <laughs> you can all. find, <laughs> you can find all the editions of the Boston University Law School podcast on the Legal Talk Network and also on the Boston University Law School website as well as in iTunes. Uh, until we next meet, I wish all of you a great day.
0: Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.